Well, you know, Mae West was one of the bad girls of Hollywood. She played risque roles. She wrote saucy scripts. One of her Broadway plays was raided by the police. They arrested the actress for, and I quote, corrupting the morals of youth. She was sentenced to 10 days in a New York jail. It was said of Mae West, she is the kind of girl who climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. <laughs> Here are a few of the actress's quotes. I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. Marriage is a great institution, but I'm not ready for an institution yet. I only like two kinds of men, domestic and foreign. And then finally, I've been in more laps than a napkin. Mae West was a woman who became a star by being a slut. And in tonight's chapters, this is what we find. The Mae West of the Bible. We find a biblical bad girl, a spiritual prostitute. In verse 5, she's given the very unflattering, disturbing name. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. The whore of Babylon is a false religious system that rises to prominence on the back of the Antichrist. And that's the subject of these chapters here in Revelation 17 and 18. Now understand, Satan has never ever had an original idea. His desire is to steal worship from God. But he does so by mimicking God in his cast of characters. God has a Savior, Jesus Christ. But so does Satan, the Antichrist. God sends the Holy Spirit to draw men toward the Savior. Likewise, Satan sends the false prophet to lure men to worship the beast. God is preparing the church as a pure, spotless, virgin bride for his son Jesus. Whereas Satan's beast marries a polluted compromised religious entity that God calls a whore. You see, one day Satan will have his own church. Mae West entitled her autobiography, Goodness Had Nothing to Do With It. And that'll be true of this harlot in Revelation 17. This, quote, church may carry the name of God. It may even have a 501c3 nonprofit status. It even may be seen as a charitable organization. She's a so-called church, supposedly a good thing, but she's holding in her hand a cup full of abomination and filthiness. Goodness has nothing to do with her. In the words of Mae West, the whore of Babylon will say to this world, come up and see me sometime. And sadly, the world will accept her invitation. Chapter 17 begins, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, those bowls that were brimming with God's wrath, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, throughout the Bible, God always speaks of himself as he, a male, and his people as she or female. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the husband and Israel is his wife. In the New Testament, Jesus is the groom and his bride is the church. 
Recall in Revelation chapter 12, the woman with a wreath of 12 stars on her head was God's people Israel. And as in a marriage, God expects fidelity and loyalty and trust from his people. We're to reserve our hearts and our lives and our bodies for God. This is the nature of true worship. I hope you realize that every human being is a worshiper at heart. You live for a reason. Either your own pleasure or some vice or maybe success or a cause or an activity or another person. But you live for a reason. There's an object to your living and to your affections. We're always channeling our affections and our ambitions in a primary direction. And whatever is at the end of that flow is the object of your worship. We could call it our functional God. Sometimes we say God is our God, but what is our functional God? It's whatever's at the end of the flow of your affections. In the Old Testament, Yahweh demanded Israel's loyalty. In the New Testament, Jesus expects us to reserve our hearts for him. And when either Israel or the church strays and compromises its commitment and convictions, then God interprets that disloyalty as adultery. Or here in the words of Revelation as fornication. It is the betrayal of a spouse. You see from God's perspective spiritual compromise is the equivalent to sexual infidelity. Both involve a sellout. You swap your integrity and your relationship with God for a convenience or for a moment of pleasure. Or in the case of this harlot status and monetary gain. In Revelation 19, we'll see the faithful bride of Christ at her marriage to the Lamb. As bowls of judgment are poured out on earth, the church loves and worships her Savior in heaven. By this point, true believers have been raptured. I love Vance Havner's advice to churchgoers today. He writes, don't ever come to church without coming as though it was the first time, as though it could be the best time, and as though it might be the last time. We need to be ready. The true church will be in heaven at this point, but a bogus church will still be on earth. Unlike God's wife and Christ's bride, this harlot seduces the world. She is a faith community, but she believes in the beast. She sells her soul for a ride, and we'll see later what her beast back ride gets her. And notice... She sits on many waters. You remember back in Revelation 13 verse 1, as in other passages, the sea or many waters represents the vast expanse of lost humanity. The idea also gets reiterated in verse 15. Apparently this harlot sits on a worldwide movement. She has a global appeal. She morphs into the world's religion. Here is the first church of the beast. There is a last day's church. There is a church on earth after the real church gets raptured. Did you know that current statistics show that the growth of Christianity in America has plateaued? Among 20-somethings, it's in a state of decline. But that doesn't mean that people are being less religious. In fact, religion is on an upswing. Christianity is, going, is plateaued, whereas religion is on an upswing. Recently, I sat on a plane next to a lady 
who described herself to me as a cafeteria Catholic. You ever heard the term? She defined it as she picks and chooses aspects of her faith that suits her tastes. What she finds offensive, she just leaves off her plate. She's a cafeteria Catholic. And this is the growing trend among Christians in general. People are rejecting the restraints of Orthodox Christianity to concoct their own designer religion. In a 2007 Pew Research poll, 57% of people who call themselves evangelical Christians agreed that there are many ways to heaven, not just Christianity. That means that 6 out of 10 professing Christians now deny the exclusivity of Christ. Like a harlot, Christians have sold their Savior out for the favors of this world. Realize when the true church gets raptured, there are going to be many churches that will continue normal operations. It'll be Sunday as usual for a lot of churches. For not everyone who professes Christ is a genuine Christian. In Matthew 7, Jesus warns us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Profession, mere profession, doesn't guarantee possession. It'll be shocking how much of Christendom will be left behind after the true believers have been raptured. Liberal theologians and hypocritical church bureaucrats and appeasing, compromised pastors will all be left behind. And once all of those narrow-minded fundamentalists who took the Bible literally, once those guys are out of the way, it'll be easy for the new emergent leaders to justify further compromises of the fundamental truths of Christianity. Biblical Christianity will be gutted of its imperatives and blended with other religious ideas. You see, the whore of Babylon will be an all roads lead to God movement. And we see it happening today, don't we? This is the warning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And this great harlot will be the chief perpetrator of deception and demonic doctrines. The whore of Babylon will be the ultimate triumph of tolerance and syncretism. Somehow she'll lull pseudo-Christians and Muslims perhaps and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and New Agers. Everyone into her ecumenical bed of belief. If the whore of Babylon has a church bus, you'll bet it'll sport the bumper sticker, coexist. Recall in Jesus' letters to the seven churches, he threatened to cast the heretical believers who committed adultery into great tribulation unless they repent. I believe apostate Christians of both Catholic and Protestant tradition will help make up this awful harlot. John tells us more about her in verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which, has, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 13 identified this blasphemous beast as the Antichrist. A future furor, the satanic savior. And this harlot will rise to prominence on the back of the beast. 
Like the Christian churches in Germany who early on supported Hitler and the Nazis, this church in the Great Tribulation will sell her soul for a ride on the beast. She'll supply the beast with religious sanction, and in return, he'll catapult her to worldly power and prestige. It's a marriage made in hell. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Understand, this harlot is no streetwalker. She's a high-priced call girl. She's decked out. Her seductions and compromises have gained for her privileged status. And she's clearly identified, verse 5. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Just as God has his headquarters on the earth, the city of Jerusalem, Satan likewise has his mission central, mission control. People think Satan's headquarters is in hell. That today he and his demons are huddled up in a corner over in the flames mapping out their strategies. Hey, this couldn't be further from the truth. Hell is the last place Satan wants to be. His, quarters is on, his headquarters is on earth. It's called Babylon. Genesis 11 identifies Babel as the site of the first satanic coup d'etat. The first global revolt against God. You remember a man named Nimrod. A name whose name, a name that means he will rebel or we will rebel. This Nimrod rallied mankind against God. He convinced them that even though God promised to never flood the earth again, God couldn't be trusted. Fear God, trust Nimrod was his campaign slogan. And it worked. At Babel, they built a waterproof tower in the midst of the desert. If God tried another flood, they'd be ready. Of course, along with their brazen rebellion, Nimrod created his own religion. He built a tower to heaven. Through their own efforts, mankind tried to ascend to God's place. They tried to climb the tower. Nimrod's followers could be wise as God. He promised them enlightenment and self-deification. And this is Satan's promise today. You can be your own God, says the religions of this world. We're all basically good. Just look for the God within. Religion still tries to build a tower to God. Whether it's Judaism's Ten Commandments or the Five Laws of Islam or Buddhism's Four Noble Truths or a smorgasbord of New Age manipulations or Joseph Smith, Smith's baloney from Moroni, whatever it is. Religion is all about erecting a way for man to climb above his own reach and get to God. And it all traces back to Babylon. Over the ages and across the globe, different religious theories and techniques have been developed, but they're all a reflection of what started originally in Babylon. How can man climb above his own reach and get to God? All religions are trying to build a tower to heaven. This is why the whore of the last days is called the mother of harlots and abominations. In other words, she is the source. And in the end, all her chicks will come home to roost. All the variants of Nimrod's lie will return to mama. They'll come back to this harlot. Verse 6 is the telling passage. 
John writes, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And here's the creed of this religious harlot. Believe in anything but Jesus. That's her creed. Everything is shown tolerance except faith in Christ. This may be the one prophecy in Revelation that's easiest to believe. For even today, Jesus is where the world takes offense. Talk about God and people will applaud. But mention Jesus and they'll try to shut you up. For Jesus is and will be the line of demarcation between real Christianity and this harlot's bogus brand. But John continues in verse 6. And when I saw her, this mother of harlots, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And what follows is the angel's explanation. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now recall Revelation 13 verse 3. For there we're told this. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. The Antichrist survives a lethal wound. Perhaps it's a failed assassination attempt. We don't know. He appears as if he's dead, but he recovers miraculously. In other words, he was and is not and yet is. And I like what John adds in verse 8. And he'll go to perdition. His ultimate destination is literally hellfire. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And in the writings of antiquity, the city set on seven hills was always synonymous with the city of Rome. Notice verse 18 also identifies the city as that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, all the emperors ruled from the capital of Rome. This harlot is a religious system based in Rome. Now earlier we noted the connection between Rome and the beast. In Daniel chapter 9 as well as other passages, we're informed that the Antichrist will lead a revived Roman Empire. And what's true of the beast is true of his government. In John's day, the Roman Empire dominated the world. It was. That's before it fractured into various kingdoms. For a time, it's not. But today, we see a resurgence of nations that make up ancient Rome. The European community is the Rome that yet is. And do you know the favorite symbol of the new European community? It's a woman riding on a beast. Isn't that amazing? Here's a German phone card. It's got that picture. Or maybe you could say the back of a two euro coin. Same picture. Or a Time Magazine graphic for a united Europe. Or the sculpture outside the European Parliament. A woman riding on a beast. Or two European postage stamps. 
Or how about a German magazine cover? They all depict the image we find in Revelation 17. The last day's harlot seems to make its home in Rome. And of course, what worldwide religious system is headquartered today in Rome? The Roman Catholic Church. And this is the observation that has led many people to connect this harlot with Roman Catholicism. What makes this even more provocative is that over the centuries, Roman Catholic theology has integrated many pagan and Babylonian practices into its tradition. The Pope's title, Pontiff Maximus, or High Priest, was the name taken from the Babylonian priesthood. Practices like the use of icons, the celibacy of priests and nuns, purgatory, Lent, holy water, the Mass, the veneration of Mary, salvation by sacraments. None of these things can be found in the Bible, but they all can be traced to Babylonian paganism. This is why I am a protestant. There is much to protest still. And yet, do I believe that the harlot in Revelation 17 is the Roman Catholic Church? No. I believe the whore of Babylon will be far broader than any particular church or religion. I believe it will be an amalgamation of all religions, a global religion that's used by the Antichrist to seduce the world. Verse 10 tells us there are also seven kings. Not only are there seven heads and seven heels, they also represent seven kings. He says, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Five world-spanning empires preceded the first century in John's writing of Revelation. There was Egypt, and then the Assyrians, and then the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persians came, followed by the Greeks. The world empire that existed at the time of John was Rome. But there is one more world empire yet to come. John writes, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. When the Antichrist unites a fractured world under the auspices of this new Rome, his reign will be brief. Daniel 9 tells us it'll last but seven years, a drop in the bucket compared to these previous six empires. Verse 11, and the beast that was and is not and is himself also the eighth and is of the seven is going to perdition. The seventh beast is this new Rome. The eighth is its leader, the Antichrist himself. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. The Antichrist apparently will establish ten provinces. He'll appoint subordinates to help him, but they won't reign long. That's why you shouldn't waste your time looking at today's political landscape for this configuration. This will all happen toward the end. And these kings don't last long. They last just a single hour. Verse 13. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These ten kings will drink the Kool-Aid, man. They'll sell their soul to the beast. And yet talk about hitching your wagon to the wrong horse. These kings find themselves in a fearful position. Verse 14. For these will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, are called, chosen, and faithful. 
The beast and his ten buddies are Jesus' foe at the battle of Armageddon. Hey, God put down Nimrod in the first Babylonian revolt by confusing the languages and dispersing the people. He will destroy the final Babel by gathering the nations into the plain of Megiddo to make war with the Lamb. We'll read the play-by-play of that battle next week in chapter 19. And then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, this harlot will cast a worldwide web. Verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Irony of ironies. The beast and his buddies will turn on the harlot. After they use her up, they'll spit her out. Here's a pseudo-Christian church that ceased being Christian to appease the world and to avoid persecution. And where did it get her? Naked, eaten, and burned. We need to realize that the church is never stronger. We're never more spiritually successful than when we stand up for the truth, not when we compromise it. You see, here's the possible progression of all these events. For the first half of this seven years, the Antichrist is hailed as a man of peace. Jews and Arabs, they get along under his reign. The false prophet and the religious harlot, they spread his message. All roads lead to God. Everyone coexists. But at the midpoint, the Antichrist reveals his true colors. He defiles the temple in Jerusalem and he claims to be God. He martyrs the two witnesses in the streets before they rise up and ascend to heaven. In the process, the harlot is no longer needed. He's already claimed to be God. From now on, the only religion allowed is the worship of the beast. And to secure that worship, he blackmails the world. To participate in his commercial system, you need a mark in your right hand or in your forehead, the number 666. Those who refuse either starve to death or they get put to death. Verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, the only city to fit that description would be Rome. And so the Antichrist will rule the world. He'll establish a global government headquartered in a new Rome, but two Babylons will help bring him to power. Chapter 17 has spotlighted a religious Babylon, whereas chapter 18 focuses on a commercial Babylon. You see, total rule requires control of both religion and the economy, and that's what we see in chapter 18. It begins, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury." Remember, Babylon is Satan central. Babylon isn't just a city. It's also a system. 
Babylon is a trap that the devil uses to deceive and manipulate. He entices the world through religion and through riches. And Babel is about both. Here we're told that it was Babylon's wealth that enticed the world to worship at the altar of the Antichrist. The nations drank her spiritual fornication and became rich. It's no surprise that the nations of the world will sell out principle for profit. Give people more entitlements, new jobs, lower interest rates, peace and prosperity. And they'll overlook a sinister spiritual agenda. The Antichrist will usher in an age of opulence. And the nations will all sell a soul, their soul for a piece of the pie. I hope you're not the type of person who trades godliness for greed. Would you compromise spiritually to get ahead financially? You should think about that. It's alarming the concessions that some Christians will make for one more lousy dollar. Let's make sure that we're all free from the love of money. You recall Jesus' words in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. If forced to make the choice, would you choose devotion to God or the luxuries of this world? Notice verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins unless you receive of her plagues. Just as God called the righteous folks of Sodom before judgment came down, though he called out the righteous, here he warns the world of the pending destruction of Babylon. A gracious God will offer the world a chance to repent of its materialism. He says, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. God has scrutinized Babylon He's looked at her books. He's noted her every transaction. Every workplace injustice. Every employee who was abused. Every sweatshop. Every time the currency was manipulated for someone's financial advantage. Every time profit took precedent over people, God took note. And now he says, render to her just as she rendered to you. And repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. Babylon bellies up to the bar and God orders her a double shot of his wrath. And then heaven adds, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. The rich of this world who've made a fortune off the backs of neglected workers, beware, you'll be treated one day as you've treated others. We've heard what heaven is saying, but here's what Babylon is thinking. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Wow. The commercial titans of this world will be judged in a single day. It'll come suddenly and comprehensively. And they'll be utterly burned with fire. Could it be the commercial sinners of the world will get nuked? 
Verse 9 tells us, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment. Where are the kings standing at a distance? Perhaps they're afraid of the radiation fallout. They're saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. How can a huge metropolis be burned to a crisp in a single hour? It would take some kind of cataclysmic blast. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. The Warren Buffetts, the Donald Trumps will weep. For no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every type of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots. And notice, and bodies and souls of men. Notice John says the world in the last days will be trading in the bodies and souls of men. Today, millions of people are trapped in some form of slavery. Human trafficking is a modern-day problem. And we should, re- we should support those who are shining a light into this darkness. Verse 14, the fruit of The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you. And you shall find them no more at all. Hey, it's a good reminder for us that all the material stuff that we might seek or possess, the house and the car and the antique furniture and the baseball card collection, hey, it's all going to burn one day. You know that, don't you? The things you're so worried about right now, it's all going to burn. I hope you're investing in those things that will last forever. He says, the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? Babylon has fallen. Here a specific city is in view. Is it Rome? Is it New York City? Is it another of the world's leading economic centers? Or could it be actual Babylon? You know, Sodom Hussein rebuilt a slither of ancient Babylon. U.S. troops used it as a camp during the Iraqi war. Today, Babel is a fledging tourist attraction. Perhaps one day, Babylon will be rebuilt with its strategic location, with all its oil reserves. It could rise again. Yet whether a city or a system... Babylon will be known, not for its rise, but for its fall. What was predicted in chapter 14, verse 8, by the second angel who canvassed the globe is fulfilled right here. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, 
that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. But while the earth mourns, heaven celebrates. For we read in verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. The beast and his businesses collaborated together To buy and sell, you needed a mark. To get it, you had to bow. And now the commercial system that persecuted God's people gets her retribution. She'll suffer what she dished out. And then verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. A millstone was a symbol of ancient commerce and business. And yet here the millstone is thrown into the sea. God is tired of man's greed. Hey, greed is not good. Greed is a sin. If capitalism means an investment of funds to grow business and create jobs and provide goods and services for the betterment of society, then I'm for it. God is for it. But if capitalism means the rich exploiting workers and padding their pockets at the expense of the poor, then God is against it. And he will bury it in the bottom of the sea. And the angel said, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. Babylon will not be business as usual. World markets and corporations will be interrupted by God's judgment. God will take to task the great machinery, the capitalistic machinery and corporations of this world. Hey, we learned in chapters 2 and 3, God judges churches. We learned that God judges nations. Hey, why not God judging businesses? That's what we learned here in chapter 18. God will judge the business world as well. For it too is capable of sin and treachery and blasphemy. I graduated from Georgia State University. I have a degree in business administration. Georgia State University is one of the finest business schools in the South. I was there for four years. And yet, nobody ever read to me Revelation chapter 18. I think it should be part of every business curriculum. They should have read me this chapter. For God not only judges governments and churches, but also businesses. He cares about business leaders and business practices, and he will take them to task one day. Verse 23, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. What an indictment. The merchants of the world, big business, is accused of the sin of sorcery. Hey, when does an advertiser go beyond the boundaries of truthfulness? And engage in willful manipulation. I mean, some advertisements border on hypnotic. Here's an ad for wrinkle cream. 
I mean, give me a break. Is it moral to advertise alcohol and never warn of addiction? Or use marketing that targets children? Is that moral? And we all know that sex sells, but does that make it right? Hey, God is going to hold business responsible for these things. Don't be deceived. Those who use lust and lies and greed and covetousness to market its products are as guilty as those who succumb to the temptations. One day God will weigh, he'll weigh in on all of these questions and he'll have his say in the evaluation of the business of this world. Hey, don't tell God, mind your own business. The world will discover that his authority extends to all businesses. And then finally, verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. This Babylon could be Rome. The Roman Colosseum was the slaughterhouse of the martyrs. The Roman catacombs were the tombs. Ancient Rome was guilty of the blood of the saints. But in the last days, the whole world will be swayed by the beast in Babel. It will all share in its punishment. Which brings us to Revelation chapter 19. Jesus is coming back next week at Calvary Chapel. Hallelujah. Next Sunday night here at Calvary Chapel, we'll be studying the second coming of Jesus Christ. You don't want to miss it. Don't miss next Sunday. And hey, most importantly, don't miss Jesus. Bow your heart to him, to only him. Give him your whole heart. Give him your life, your time, your stuff, your money. For Jesus is the king of the jungle. It's a jungle out there. But Jesus is the king. And one day, he'll bring it all under his rule and under his righteousness. And we long for that day. And there we have Revelation chapter 17 and 18. 